Welcome to the Word of God, another podcast where we look at the lectionary readings for the week of the seventh Sunday after Pentecost, and that is proper 10. Now, Pentecost was celebrated on May 23rd, and we are seven weeks after May 23rd. And that's how we get the seventh Sunday after Pentecost. Remember, we are in the second half of the church liturgical season, and we are talking about a liturgical season, meaning when we started the first year, we started with Advent, and then we went to Epiphany, Christmas actually, Epiphany, Lent, Easter, and then we celebrated after 50 days of Jesus' resurrection, we celebrated Pentecost, the day of Pentecost. And then we moved into the second half of our church season with the Sundays after Pentecost. The first Sunday after Pentecost is entitled Trinity Sunday, where we talk about the Holy Trinity. Now we are in proper 10 and we are working on three different readings in the Bible. We are continuing our reading of 1 Samuel in the Old Testament, 1 Samuel, which is a history book, is a history book. We begin with the first five books of the Old Testament that's called the Pentateuch, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. The history books start with Joshua, and they end with Ezra and Nehemiah. And we have in that section from Joshua, Judges, Ruth, 1st and 2nd Samuel, 1st and 2nd uh, Kings, 1st and 2nd Chronicles, Ezra, Nehemiah, and um, Esther. We conclude with Esther. Now, in 1 Samuel, we are continuing our study of David and Saul. Now remember, we started in the beginning of Samuel with the birth of Samuel to Hannah, who could not have children, and she cried out to the Lord, and the Lord blessed her with Samuel. Samuel became what many considered the final judge previous book to 1 Samuel was Judges, and the final judge, and then Saul becomes king because the people of Israel did not want to be led by Samuel's two children. They were not very competent and not very able, and so they wanted a king. The king that they got was a very attractive-looking person. His name was Saul. Now, Saul did not work out because Saul disobeyed the Lord, and we've spoken about that in the last couple of podcasts. When we left off last time, in chapter 17, we have David and Goliath. In chapter 16, God tells Samuel to go to the house of Jesse and to anoint one of his sons to be the next king of Israel. Because, as I said earlier, Saul did not work out. And he does. And then we have David and Goliath. And so for proper 10, 
we go from 1 Samuel 17, 50 to 1 Samuel 22, 1 through 23. Now, a complete list of all the lectionary readings for Proper 10 can be found in the description of this post. So you will find all of the scriptures that you are to be encouraged to read throughout the week. And you will be looking at 1 Samuel, Acts, and the book of Mark. And we'll give you a short description of each of them. And I want to encourage you to read these on a daily basis. The whole point of doing this podcast is to encourage you and me to make a daily habit of reading the Word of God. And you'll be reading in the Old Testament, you'll be reading in the New Testament as part of an epistle or the book of Acts or Revelation, and you'll be reading a gospel. Always a gospel, always Old Testament, always New Testament. And the gospel, of course, is Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, and that will rotate throughout the year. All right. Let's look at 1 Samuel, and then we'll look at Acts, and then we'll look at the gospel of Mark. In 1 Samuel 18, we have a serious problem. We have Saul in charge. We have David who's been anointed and was very successful in chapter 17 in destroying and defeating Goliath, one of the great miracles of all time, one of the great um, truths of all time in that God fights our battles. Even when the enemy looks to be too great or too mighty, God Almighty is able to work through us to do his will. And so David very much personifies the, a great warrior and a great person who has this amazing relationship with God Almighty. Tremendous faith, tremendous trust in God. Well, not surprisingly, Saul is very jealous. So as you're reading through chapter 18 and 19 and 20, you're going to see that Saul is trying to kill David. He's jealous that David is so well-loved. He's jealous that David is an extraordinary warrior. He's jealous that David has extraordinary leadership capabilities. He's jealous that David can do things that he cannot do. And of course, he ultimately becomes jealous that David's relationship with God is better than Saul's relationship with God. And as you know, God has abandoned Saul because of Saul's disobedience. And so please read those chapters very carefully, very slowly. Just pick up the main idea. What is the main idea as you read through 1 Samuel? You're, you're really into some significant details in Israel's history of the transition between the first kingship of Saul and the second kingship of David. You also have introduced Jonathan. And Jonathan becomes a, uh, an, has an extraordinary relationship with David and is very close to David. He's also very close to Saul. So Jonathan is between the two, if you will. Jonathan is trying to work with both men in a very positive and productive way. And as you read this, you'll see that Jonathan's father, who happens to be Saul, 
He's very difficult to deal with. And Jonathan is trying to keep David alive by appealing to his father and working with his father in such a way that his father does not kill David. Now, in the background, God is not going to allow David to kill Saul because he actually gets the opportunity or Saul to kill David because it is God's will for David to be the second king of Israel. Jonathan says to David in chapter 20, verse 12, By the Lord, the God of Israel, I will surely sound out my father by this time the day after tomorrow. If he is favorably disposed toward you, will I not send you word and let you know? But if my father is inclined to harm you, may the Lord deal with me, be it ever so severely, if I do not let you know and send you away safely. You see what he's trying to do? He's trying to protect his friend David. And he has to deal with his father who wants to kill him. May the Lord be with you as he has been with my father. But show me unfailing kindness like that of the Lord as long as I live, so that I might not be killed. And do not ever cut off your kindness from my family, not even when the Lord has cut off every one of David's enemies from the face of the earth. So Jonathan makes a covenant with the house of David, saying, May the Lord call David's enemies to account. And David and Jonathan had David reaffirm his oath out of love for him because he loved him as he loved himself. So Jonathan and David had this wonderful relationship with each other, as I said, very close. And Jonathan is trying to protect his father and he's trying to protect David. So as you're reading this, it's very good reading in chapters 18, 19, 20, and 21. And so you're seeing the exploits of David. You're seeing how he's traveling around trying to get away from Saul. He doesn't try to go to battle with him because he doesn't want to kill him because he's the Lord's anointed. So he trusts God to take care of him. At the same time, he has to keep moving because Saul is trying to pursue him. Why is Saul pursuing him? Because he wants to get rid of him. Why? Because as long as he believes Saul is in, David is in the way, according to Saul. David becomes an ob obstacle to the kingdom. And Saul is trying to preserve his kingdom, even though Samuel has repeatedly told him that the Lord has abandoned him. He still wants to, if you will, fight to the bitter end. And so we conclude this week with 1 Samuel chapter 22, and we see again and again, we don't have time to go through every single chapter and every single part of it. But what you'll find in a, on a macro level is this situation where Saul is attempting to deal treacherously with David, who actually, David, loves Saul and prays for Saul and has done a lot of positive things for Saul in his career. But because of the way Saul is, and the kind of makeup that he has, he's looking at doing very destructive things in his kingdom. And as we'll see in the next couple of weeks, we'll see how that ends. If you turn to Acts chapter 11, Acts chapter 11. Now remember the book of Acts is what happens to the church after Jesus' resurrection and Jesus' ascension. He ascends into heaven in Acts chapter 1. 
The Holy Spirit comes down in Acts chapter 2. 3,000 are added that day after Paul, Peter, not Paul, preached. In Acts chapter 3, 4, and 5, we have the healing that Peter and John do with a cripple by the power of Jesus Christ. But the leadership does not like that because they believe that Jesus is dead or that Jesus is a blasphemer. And so the idea that he could be alive and that these guys could do anything supernaturally was more than they could stand. When we get to Acts chapter 6, we have the calling of the diaconate, if you will, the people that help the apostles. And then in chapter 7, we have Stephen, who comes along and dies and perishes at the end. And he dies at the end of chapter 7 because they stone him. And he has this wonderful recapitulation, recapitulation of Israel's history. In chapter 8, we have Philip, Samaria, the Ethiopian eunuch. And then we go to chapter 9, where Saul is going to Damascus to try to do more harm to the Christians. And Jesus meets him on the road and his life is forever changed. Very famous chapter. In chapter 10, we have the introduction of the Holy Spirit to the Gentiles through Cornelius. And we have the visitation of Paul. We talked about this in proper nine. We have Paul doing his work with the Jews in chapter nine, and Peter, doing his work with the Gentiles as sent by God in chapter 10. In chapter 11, Peter is explaining his actions to the group. And then we see, we pick up in verse 19 to 30 about what's going on with the church in Antioch. News of this reached the ears of the church of Jerusalem and they sent Bar uh, Barnabas to Antioch. This is chapter 11, verse 22. When he arrived and saw evidence of the grace of God, he was glad and encouraged them to remain true to the Lord with all their hearts. Barnabas was a good man, full of the Holy Spirit and faith, and a great number of people were brought to the Lord. Barnabas was a wonderful apostle, and the Lord used him in Acts chapter 9, if you recall. Barnabas went to Tarsus to look for Saul in verse 25, and when he found him, he brought him to Antioch. And for a whole year, Barnabas and Saul, Paul, met with the church and taught great numbers of people. The disciples were first called Christians at Antioch. So that's that wonderful verse in chapter 11, verse 26. And so what happens is the Lord is doing great things. The Lord is saving Jewish people and healing people and now has begun to save the Gentiles, chapter 10, and now they're witnessing and sharing the gospel with other people. At the same time, the Jewish people do not like this at all. They're very upset, and they like to see them silenced. And so we begin in chapter 12 with two stories, one very sad, one very glorious. Chapter 12, verse 1. It was about this time that King Herod arrested some who belonged to the church intending to persecute them. Okay, now the king is coming after them. He had James, the brother of John, James and John, Peter and Andrew, James and John, put to death with the sword. 
All of a sudden, just like that, a member of the apostles, one of the 12 dies. One of the original 12 dies by the sword. When he, King Herod, saw that this pleased the Jews, he proceeded to seize Peter also. This happened during the Feast of Unleavened Bread. After arresting him, verse 4, he put him in prison, handing him over to be guarded by four squads of four soldiers each. Herod intended to bring him out for public trial after the Passover. Basically, there's no way that Peter was going to live. No way. Four squads of four soldiers each. There's nobody that could have gotten him out. Herod was going to have a trial and make himself look real good by putting this guy in prison. Now remember, this all started in chapter 3 with Peter. But no one had done anything yet. They had called him up for questioning. They had beaten him. But they had not put him in prison in such a way as to confine him and then have a trial and probably, almost certainly, he would have perished after that. They would have killed him after that. So Peter was in prison, verse 5, but the church was earnestly praying to God for him. Okay. The night before Herod was to bring him to trial, verse 6, Peter was sleeping between two soldiers bound with two chains and sentries stood guard at the entrance. No way to get him out. Except if something were to happen supernaturally. Suddenly, an angel of the Lord appeared, and a light shone in a cell. He struck Peter on the side and woke him up. Get up! And the chains fell from Peter's wrist. This is an amazing miracle. The angel said to him, Put on your clothes and sandals. Peter did so. Wrap your cloak around you and follow me. The angel told him. Verse 9. Peter followed him out of the prison, but he had no idea that what the angel was doing was really happening. He thought he was seeing a vision. They passed the first and second guards. They came to the iron gate leading to the city. It opened for them by itself. They went through it. When they had walked the length of one street, suddenly the angel left him. Wow! Now I know, Peter says, verse 11, without a doubt, that the Lord sent his angel and rescued me from Herod's clutches and from everything the Jewish people were anticipating. In the first instance, Herod captured James, the brother of John, and put him to death with a sword. And the second instance, Peter was miraculously rescued. Could God have prevented John from being killed by the sword? Yes. Could God have rescued James, I'm sorry? Yes. Did he rescue him? No. Do you know why? I don't. Could God have allowed Peter to suffer and die? Yes. And why didn't he? He miraculously delivered him. Ultimately, the sovereignty of God prevails. This is a fantastic example of the truth of that reality. The sovereignty of God. God is in charge. He can do supernatural things. He can do extraordinarily miraculous things. We already saw that in Acts chapter 3. We're seeing again in Acts chapter 12. But we saw it in Acts chapter 9 and we saw it in Acts chapter 10. We also saw it in Acts chapter 2 
with the coming of the Holy Spirit and the salvation of 3,000. So the Acts is very much about the activity of the Holy Spirit and the activity of God in doing miraculous things. So enjoy the rest of chapter 12. It's a beautiful chapter. In chapter 13, we are on missionary journey. So Thursday, Friday, and Saturday are about Acts 13. Barnabas and Saul are sent off. They were fasted. They prayed. They placed their hands on them. They sent them off. Chapter 13, verse 3. They go to Cyprus. They go to Pisidian Antioch. And so what they do, this is where in your Bible, you'll want to get a Bible that has maps. And the maps are usually located at the back of your Bible. Or look them up on your phone. Google the site. It's, it's important to see where this is geographically. It's important to follow them. But you'll probably, if you have a good Bible, which I'm sure you do, at the back of your Bible, you'll want to look at your map so that you can track the movement of these missionary journeys. And you'll see this the rest of Acts. We'll be following Paul and Barnabas and others uh, throughout the book of Acts. Now, also what happens is that there are speeches given in these, in these missionary journeys. And uh, a lot of times uh, they're appealing to Jewish people, later Gentiles, about the gospel, about the faith. And so these are very valuable um, sections of Acts where, and speeches that are given by uh, Peter or Paul, mostly Paul, where he's sharing the gospel with them and who Christ is. A lot of times he's taking them, as he does in chapter 13, back to um, God working in the Old Testament and what he did with the people of Israel. Verse 23 of chapter 13, For this man's descendants, God has brought to Israel a Savior, Jesus, as he promised. Before the coming of Jesus, John preached repentance and baptism to all the people of Israel. As John was completing his work, he said, What do you think I am? I am not that one. No, but one is coming after me whose sandals I'm not worthy to untie. And you'll see that found in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. So enjoy the reading of chapter 13 and a beautiful missionary journey, an important missionary journey, and some preaching along with it. Now, when we met for proper nine, we looked at the death of Christ and the resurrection of Christ in Luke 24. The death of Christ in 23, the resurrection in 24. Then we went to Mark's gospel. So I'm going back to Mark. Mark's gospel has no infancy narrative, Matthew and Luke do, and no prologue, John does. He just immediately begins, as I said last week, when we looked at chapter 1 in the, uh, through verse 28. We have the baptism of Jesus, we have the temptation of Jesus, we have the calling of the first disciples, we have him casting out devils, and we have him healing people. So he is going to work. He is going to work, and he is, he's about 30 years old, works for about three years, 30 to 33, and he, he, Mark, is identifying what Jesus is doing. And when you see what Jesus is doing, you'll see what kind of person he is. And that hopefully will draw you and me and the people in this first century to him. Not to get a miracle, but to love him for who he is. So as you're reading through the text of Mark, he's going to be giving you lots of examples of this extraordinarily great person 
who is a great teacher and a great preacher and a great healer and a great person that casts out demons and a person that has tremendous power. And you want to be drawn to that person to love him, honor him, serve him, and listen to him. So we have the end of chapter 1 of Mark, 29 to 39. Jesus praying, Jesus healing many, and the man with leprosy. Then we go into chapter 2, and we have another series of miracles through the end of chapter 3. We have the healing of the paralytic, where Jesus shows this incredible authority because he has the power to forgive sins. Only God can do that. Yes, but I'm God, basically. It doesn't say that in the Bible, but it's inferred. He has the power to forgive sins. He's either a blasphemer or he is who he says he is, the Messiah. Matthew is called in Mark chapter 2. Jesus continues his teaching in Mark chapter 2 in verses 19 and 20 and 21 and then through the end of chapter 2. Now, his miracles and his teaching are important and as you're reading them, again, you want to get the context of what's going on at that time and you want to get the context of what he's saying to you today. And then finally, we look at chapter 3. We have many, the crowds are now swelling. They're now following him. The word's getting around that this is an extraordinary person. He casts out devils. He heals people. We'll ultimately see that he has power over the wind and the waves. He has power over nature. He appoints 12 apostles. He calls them, and they are with him. And he even talks about Beelzebub in the end of chapter 3, uh, who happens to be Satan. I love the end of chapter 3. Jesus' mother and brothers arrived, standing outside, verse 31. They sent someone in to call him. A crowd was sitting around them, and they told him, Your mother and brothers are waiting outside to see you. Who are my mother and brothers, he said. He looked around, those seated in a circle. He said, Here are my mother and my brothers. Whoever does God's will is my brother and sister and mother. And so I conclude today's podcast for Proper 10 saying, may you and I do God's will and be associated with Jesus, this extraordinary person that Mark tells us about, as my brother, my sister, my mother. God bless you and you're reading this week. I look forward to seeing you next week when we look at and talk about and discuss and share the Word of God.